Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 1st of September with me, Ian Welsh. Continuing our recent focus on commodity supply chains and palm oil in particular, I was pleased to catch up recently with Goots Martin from Golden Agri Resources. We talked about how the sector should go about reducing emissions and the changing requirements from brands given palm oil companies such as GAR are part of their Scope 3 carbon footprint. First though is some sustainable business news. Part of its Diageo Sustainable Solutions Programme, the big brand's drinks company, has committed to new pilot schemes in East Africa, working with farmers to develop agricultural methods that improve water quality, promote biodiversity and enhance soils. Diageo has committed £450,000 initially for the pilot projects, but the company says it plans to roll the programme out to smallholder farmers across Africa and Asia. Diageo Sustainable Solutions was initially launched in 2020 as part of the company's sustainability strategy based on alignment with the sustainable development goals, including net zero operational emissions and a 50% cut in scope 3 supply chain emissions by 2030. Big brand sponsors of the Football World Cup coming up in November in the tiny desert state of Qatar will be fully aware of potential reputational risks being associated with a country with such a bad reputation on human rights. Following a rare protest from migrant workers, reports emerged that more than 60 have recently been deported. The workers were complaining about not being paid, some for up to seven months, by the Al Bandri International Group, which is primarily a construction and engineering business. Whether or not the deported workers were involved in World Cup-related construction is unclear, but since the tournament was awarded to the Gulf State in 2010, there have been a string of allegations and reports about the treatment of migrant workers brought in to build the new stadiums and associated infrastructure necessary to host the biggest sporting event on the planet. In the US state of Florida, Governor Don DeSantis has passed legislation that prevents fund managers for the state's $228 billion pension funds from taking into account ESG screening in investment processes. Instead, decisions must be based only on financial factors. The resolution explicitly refers to the Biden administration's clear intentions to encourage ESG investment as part of the reasoning behind its anti-ESG rules. DeSantis, a potential Republican presidential candidate in 2024, has stressed his opposition to ESG-based investment policies, calling them an attempt to impose through the economy an ideological agenda, vowing that in Florida, ESG is dead in the water. Innovation Forum Autumn events include the next in our series on the future of plastics and packaging on the 11th and 12th of October in Amsterdam, with a focus this year on how business can build circular packaging solutions that deliver impacts at scale. Among those already confirmed to take part in the conference sessions are business experts from Unilever, Kellogg, Mattel and Nestle. Now is the time to buy your conference passes, as you can save €200 if you register by 9th of September. Our flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Forum returns on the 1st and 2nd of November, also in Amsterdam. As ever, the agenda will have an emphasis on open, candid debate and discussion. We'll hear from the likes of Golden Agri Resources, Dole Food, Tesco, Nutura, Kraft, Diageo and many more. And if you would like to join us and you are very quick, you can save €200 Euros if you reserve your place before midnight, UK time on the 2nd of September. Recently, I was pleased to catch up with Goots Martin, Director for Sustainability and Strategic Projects at Golden Agri Resources. Why don't we start by just a very quick introduction to the work of GAR. Golden Agri Resources is an integrated seed-to-shelf palm oil company. Our operational focus is sitting in Indonesia. Our land bank is sitting in Indonesia, but we have essentially a global business. 
We're going to talk a bit about the need to prioritise emissions reductions at scale, how that's been changing and how businesses are engaging with suppliers and customers around scope three emissions. From your perspective then, how has the need for companies to prioritise emissions reductions at scale changed in the past few years? Significantly, significantly. I think if I look five, six years back, when we had meetings with customers, with investors, there was no discussion about greenhouse gases. The only discussion was indirectly, yeah, it was related to deforestation normally, but GHG has only started in 2020, really, that investors are asking. In contrast to Europe, in Asia, in in many areas, this is still a relatively early stage discussion. Are you finding pressures from customers now becoming more of a driver, given that a company like Golden Egg Resources is in a somewhat unique position being part of many companies' scope three emissions footprint, as well as having your own scope three? You're kind of very much meshed in with loads of different businesses' overall emissions footprints. We do, indeed. We have now been approached by a couple of companies, big customers of us, you know, kind of famous brands included. They have set very ambitious targets, and I think they are actually driving at the moment the change. Again, it started predominantly around deforestation, and deforestation is one of our focus areas as well in the supply chain. And so, you know, we have fairly well aligned views there. But now the discussion has been more and more shifting to THG. And so I think it was mainly about at the moment is still mainly about informing, actually, because most of the brands have made uh, 20, 50 commitments to net zero. And now they are starting to calculate how big actually or how large their scope free emissions actually are and what's the sources of the emissions. And so multiple companies have reached out and asked for data sets from us. Are you finding it almost a point of competitive advantage? If you are able to say to companies, look, we can deliver on this, we can deliver the supply you require, we can deliver uh, when you need it and the quantity and the quality and everything else, but also we can deliver you the data you require in addition to deal with your net zero journey. Absolutely, Ian. I think we see that exactly the same. A bit of a challenge is often that customers of us for sure have a specific supply chain. So it doesn't help them if one of our refineries, let's say, is net zero already, but their supply comes now from another refinery, which still has significant GHG emissions because of their fossil fuel consumption, let's say. So it's always a bit tied to specific supply chains, unfortunately. Yeah, I agree. We see that also as a business opportunity at the moment that we are positioning us in the right way to provide, obviously, solutions for our suppliers in the provision of low greenhouse gas products. Very important in this then, if you're providing that solution, is you need to have a comprehensive monitoring and verification system for your emissions and monitoring what's going on. How have you gone about developing one of them? You know, and that is something I would recommend to every company. So we have done kind of comprehensive assessment through all units following the GHG uh, protocol, as well as some ISO standards for our calculation. They've been third party reviewed by a renewed kind of auditing firm. And now we are developing a dashboard. I think having gone through this exercise is for me actually very helpful too. So you understand in which pockets are actually these data sources? Because, you know, you would think you have a kind of a holistic, comprehensive data management system for your company, but that's in many cases not the place because you have been growing through mergers and acquisitions and have multiple systems running in parallel, kind of figuring out where the data sits and in what form is a challenge, And but it's a good exercise to bring structure. 
And then on the reporting side, the dashboard, I think it gives value for sure in your external communication. So you can more easily highlight what your priorities are. Also is very critical in the internal communication. So we have now a dashboard, for example, which breaks down emissions essentially on individual mills or even individual estates. And so we can very clearly pinpoint high emitters and demand actions from them because we can see that there are other examples within the company who are run differently and then have a very different GHG footprint. It is not only for the external communication, a lot of benefits that exercise also um, internal. If it comes to monitoring, it's relatively more easy in industrial environment where you can measure flows, where you can measure emissions more easily, where it's becoming more tricky, I think, is in the land use side. There has been a lot of good progress on measuring deforestation. And that is obviously also quite simple because it's relatively easy to detect if the tree is gone or not. It becomes much more complicated when you are including forest degradation through selective logging activities, for example, but also on the other side, on the high side, also absorption for sure, because here you want to showcase that you are absorbing carbon from the atmosphere and remove emissions already today. And here measurements are not at all automated at this stage. I think there are some service providers who are going into that direction. Some of them have reached stages where they can already work on a larger scale in a rough raster, but there is still quite a bit of refinement needed that it would be acceptable for customers, verifiers, standardization organizations to accept these figures. You work in a number of different sectors, obviously, in terms of your products that eventually Palm Oil goes into. So engaging with your customers then, I guess more harmonized reporting standards would be very helpful. It's absolutely critical for us. I think it's Measurement and reporting is obviously work which requires resources, but if we need to cater for multiple different approaches, it's just a nightmare. And so, yeah, we are very supportive and happy to engage in any standardization programs. One example, which is related to deforestation. At the moment, we are trying to verify a deforestation-free supply chain since 2015. And so essentially, globally, There are three different monitoring systems available, which have all different algorithms and so therefore detect deforestation alerts slightly different than the other. And so now we get from our customers requests for verification from all these three different systems. Our teams are verifying hundreds of alerts every month, which is simply not very economical to do. Let's think a bit about community engagement. Obviously, really important when you're thinking about getting the monitoring right and dealing with getting the emissions down and engaging with the indigenous population. What are the key points to consider when engaging with communities on conservation? The key point which we want to achieve is that communities understand that the value of a standing tree is higher than of a fallen tree. What does make for you a tree valuable? A tree is valuable if you essentially own it. So one key point in the engagement is around that the land titles and the land ownership is very clear. And so therefore, if you are engaging on communities on conservation, the first step what you need to do is really to go with the communities through a free prior and informed consent FPIC process, which identifies very clearly what are actually the boundaries of the area of the village or whatever the scope of what you work, who owns the areas and what is the current land use. And only if the communities agree with you that 
your findings are correct and they agree with that, then you can start the discussion around conservation, which areas are for conservation, which are for utilization, and within the conservation area, what is allowed and what not. So this is a relatively long process. It's not simple. It takes two, three years, depending on how complex the local situation is. So this is one. And I think then, obviously, the other thing is that it's getting towards pricing, right? If we see what we've seen in the past, if you think about carbon pricing, simply the prices have been too low. If you think about avoided deforestation or a reforestation example, I become a bit, you know, let me get a bit technical here now. You know, we are talking maybe about 20 ton CO2, maybe 25 per hectare in year at a carbon price of 10 US dollars per ton CO2 gives you a revenue of 250. Minus your cost leaves you a profit of, let's say, $150 per hectare or 200. That is obviously not enough to make a living out of it. I think it's really the combination of activities. We see essentially the solution for communities are agroforestry systems where the carbon stock remains constant, where they can harvest fruits and other crops uh, within that forest environment. And so the combination of payment for environmental services plus utilizing the crops makes the difference. Obviously, one addition is if your revenue from the environmental service is relatively low, then also your costs should be low. And one is again related to what we said, monitoring and verification. If you now need to do a lot of manual monitoring, which is very time and labor intensive, then the costs are quite high. What would be a beneficial discussion for local communities would be how can you simplify monitoring and verification for community smallholder setups who are not able to provide a standard reporting mechanism which is expected from the larger verification or standard setting organizations. Let's talk a bit about baselines. Clearly, to be able to monitor and verify what you're doing, you need to establish baselines against which to report. How are realistic baselines best established? That's the million dollar question. I think the first challenge starts is the discussion, how far are you allowed or can you go back in time? I think now the standard set by the GHG protocol is 20 years. Quite challenging in a country like Indonesia to actually to find cloud-free satellite images to really understand what your starting point has been. But, you know, that is all doable. I think what is more challenging and very interesting part of the discussion is essentially to allow payments for environmental services. Essentially, you need to show that your efforts are additional. yeah, And without these additional efforts, the forest would sooner or later disappear, which in some extent discriminates communities or smallholders who have actually managed their forest well. So then you would say, well, if there is no license, there is no immediate threat. And so therefore, that forest is not under risk of being converted. And so there is no additionality. And I think that is something that we need to think about, that communities who were good stewards for their forests in the past are not excluded (laughs) from these benefits just because they have done a good job in the past couple of years. So I think the whole baseline setting and the business as usual forecasting in smallholder community-based setups is very complicated to fulfill current criteria. You're absolutely right. Working out baselines and, as you say, not as an unintended consequence discriminating against existing good stewards of forests is one of the big issues around the whole carbon markets, carbon offsets, verified offsets, verified emission reductions debate for sure. 
When you're thinking about monitoring change then, what's the best way to go about it? And I know that GAR have got a long-standing or a relatively long-standing monitoring program. Does this involve sampling or what's the best way to go about monitoring change? Sampling is the way you do it at the moment. We in, we in GAR, we have more than a thousand sample plots established. Already the oldest ones are nearly 10 years old nowadays and they are not visited every year, but every couple of years we are going there and make the measurement again. I think what is quite interesting actually to see that if your starting point is a degraded forest and you are not enriching the area with additional planting, you see that the forest regrowth is actually relatively slow or slower than what you would expect in a tropical country, probably because of the poor soils. So I think one of our key learning is that if you want to really achieve substantial removal, in enrichment plantings are quite needed. What's also interesting was you as somebody from the UK will know it, peatland areas, if you are rehabilitating it, it's said to be the big bang for the buck avoid a lot of emission from peat decomposition. And what is interesting there is that we learned that peat goes through a cycle that in the beginning, if you are re-wetting, but you don't have vegetation on top of it already, you actually produce more methane than you did when you are draining it. And so there is, in the first couple of years, you have actually more emissions than at your starting point and then a very slow recovery. What we also see is therefore currently our focus is a bit more on scope one emission reduction, uh, fossil fuels, methane emissions, because we see if we are investing into a new technology, for example, or make some adjustments in our uh, processing facilities, we are achieving essentially 100% from the point by when we are starting the new machine running. While if you have nature-based solutions, it is actually a slow start until you are reaching an annual absorption or avoided emission until you reach the 100%. That is not going from one year on the other. And I think that is also one of our key takeaways. You know, I think I want to maybe throw out there that if you think about your own emission reduction, look first, what is your own scope one opportunities if you have processing facilities? Because these are actions which you can realize relatively quickly while nature-based solutions simply because it's nature take a bit of time until they are really showing the full impact. What are you going to be thinking about in terms of developing your efforts over the next few years? Well, I think, you know, as a, as a palm oil company, obviously one of the key focus is achieving an, a deforestation-free supply chain that will bring down emissions and land use change emissions over time. I think from a livelihood perspective, we want to enable local communities which are living in our neighborhood that they are benefiting from nature-based solutions. I think, as I mentioned, our own focus is at the moment on fuel solutions, methane solutions. I think many of them are actually, if we implement them, there are some interesting solutions where you can get double benefits. For example, if you are producing compost as a solution or you can produce from the methane of your pomipons like compressed natural gas and fire your trucks with that. So there are kind of some double benefits. But then in the long term, for sure, we also want to look more into increased removals. We are currently developing our strategy. Potentially in the not so far future, we will be able to share a bit more about how that looks like in detail. Well, I look forward to talking about that. But for now, as ever, Guts Martin from Golden Egg Resources, thank you very much for your insight. Thanks for having me in. 
As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the latest analysis and interviews. If you haven't yet had a read, look out for the latest op-ed from Alan Baker on why business sustainability issues should not be seen as exclusively on the political left, plus Mike Scott's most recent climate change column on why we need more efficient methods of cooling. And don't forget that if you want to join either the Plastics and Packaging or the Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conferences in Amsterdam this autumn, you can take advantage of discounts and passes if you reserve your place now. Everything you need to know about these is available online. But that's it for now. I'm Benin Welsh, and until next week, goodbye.